The Voice of Medicine. Gedanken, Geschichten und Talks aus der faszinierenden Welt der Medizin. Denn wir bringen sie an den Puls. Präsentiert von Radiolutions. Dear ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of The Voice of Medicine. Today with me, Michael, and a very special guest from Saudi Arabia, Professor Selwa Alhaza, who is an ophthalmologist from Saudi Arabia and uh, since 1997, the chairman of the ophthalmology department in King Faisal Hospital. She's a researcher and a politician, and I'm very happy that I can welcome her on today's podcast. Madam, welcome. Thank you very much for having me on this uh, broadcast, which I read about and I that it is an important broadcast and you're part of the world. Thank you very much. Um, Professor Alhaza, you have been, as far as I know, a year ago um, in Switzerland. Um, in fact, you've been in Lugano, I think, at the Franklin University where you've been awarded. Um, was it your first visit in Switzerland? No, that wasn't my first visit, but I, I'm not, I don't go to Switzerland very much, but... Um, I went back in, uh, in 1988. It was actually um, our honeymoon, if you will. Okay. So here in Switzerland. And then after that, I've gone a couple of times to Chamonix. We, we, did, we tried to do a little skiing. We're not exactly skiing pros. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really my only interaction with Switzerland. I'm not someone that has done any medical or um, any educational or any research uh, uh, collaboration there. So... That was practically, you know, my only interaction, which is sort of in bits and pieces. And um, I was really very, very honored <clears throat> when the uh, Lugano people um, uh, approached me and when I received an email indicating that uh, they wanted me as the guest of honor for their, I think it was the 48th or 49th uh, graduation, wanted me to give, give the pep talk and then on top of that, I was given the honor of um, their honorarium, which is the highest degree they give to any medical person. So that was really very, very touching for me. Mm -hmm. um, as I have seen, you know, a lot of magazines or newspapers um, have called you several times um, uh, the most influential woman of Saudi Arabia. Some have called you even a, sort of a pioneer for Saudi women. And as far as I know, um, you are the first woman in the history of Saudi Arabia who got a place in the Saudi parliament. And my question here would be, how did you achieve all that? Well, um, you know, I, I don't sit and think about what am, I, what am I going to achieve. You have to remember that the education for the Saudi females started in 1960. Uh, my mother, uh, who was a very important part of my life, was illiterate by force. So in reality, we are the first generation that uh, were exposed to education. So that in itself makes us pioneers. There was really not much to compete with, but on the, the flip side of it, that makes it very difficult for us because when you're initiating something for the first time, there's always resistance. People aren't used to change, and people do not want to get out of their comfort zone. So we were up against trying to pave, if you will, uh, the way 
for the generations to follow us, especially since I do have a daughter. So we remember seeing her and all her um, and her generation. We knew that we had to do the best we could. <clears throat> when you mentioned the parliament, there was actually two interactions with the parliament. The first interaction with the parliament when I was an advisor, but that was sort of behind the scenes. We were not allowed to uh, advertise it. And that was a really important step in the parliamentary history because as females, we were able to get the, uh, the Saudi Shura, or what we call the Saudi Parliament. Uh, we were actually able to make it international. So that was a very, very important step. And that was my first interaction with the Parliament. I worked quietly and behind the scenes. And then in um, 20, was it 2011 or, 20, or early 2012, the late King Abdullah mentioned that in the next uh, in the next session, females would be part of the uh, parliament uh, body, if you will. And I was very, very honored when I got the first call, and I was told that uh, I was I was chosen as one of the first thirty Saudi females to be part of the parliamentary body, which meant this was a history making and that we would be reporting directly yes. to the king with uh, important decisions, not only about women's issue, which people always think that's why we were chosen there, but there were many government issues. And with my background in health, I was able also to give, um, you know, to give um, participation, and I'm hoping productive participation within the health sector. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So from what I hear is is um, a, a huge part of, of um, your accomplishments was definitely patience, hard work, dedication. And uh, I would be interested, what was your intrinsic motivation for all this? What, what was driving you um, uh, along all these years, you know, to, to just move forward with all this? Because it wasn't easy. Right. Um, to answer that question, we really sort of have to go back. It goes back to a man or a little boy who came from a very wealthy family and they were very well off and they were all illiterate by force. Uh, and this little boy was so intrigued to get educated that his family was against him because they thought, why education if you have money? Why get educated? I mean, you've got money. So he defied all odds and when his he only had his brother because he was more or less uh, an orphan. So he had his brother who took good care of him and his mother. Um, and uh, when they would fall asleep at night after a day's hard work, he would actually go to the nearby mosque, pretend he was blind, and be able to go into the mosque to learn to read and write. That little boy was actually my father. He continued, did his elementary, did his junior high, Graduate, you know, finished that school, and then when he started into high school, they told him there is no high school in the mosque. It has to be either in a school, which he knew he could not attend, because he was hiding that he was going to school for the last six years. So he did his own homeschooling. At that time, they married very young. He married my mother at the age of 13. He was barely probably 17 or 18. They tend to marry young because they're very, very... Um, uh, if you will, what would be the right word, they were very mature, you know, in those days. There was no electricity. They were taking care of siblings. They worked hard. So 
who then married my mother, who, who did his home, own homeschooling. My mother would cover for him. His brother never knew. And this is how it started. So then all of a sudden, he had these four girls. My mother was pregnant in her last, uh, you know, last pregnancy in Saudi. And then he finished his high school, submitted his paperwork. Someone tell him, just submit it. There's new scholarships coming in in Saudi. And long and behold, he was given the scholarship. And that, in a way, um, was a very, very um, intriguing uh, story to me, not only in that, but it was also risk-taking. So when we finally uh, convinced the family after many, many months of trying to convince them that he wanted to go to the States to complete, you know, to get his bachelor's, master's degree, PhD, there was resistance from every side, from his, from his side, from my mother's side, family. And then they finally came to a conclusion when he just resisted them that, yes, he can go to the States, but on one condition, that he leave his girls here in Saudi Arabia. And we were now four. Mom now just delivered, and my father said, you know, I'm going to name her a really Western name. So he called her Suzanne just because he wanted to go with the flow. And interestingly, um, as I'm told by my father, I was at that time five years old, but he practically um, kidnapped us himself and took us with him to the States. So we were very privileged to have uh, gone to school, elementary, junior high, and most of high school in the United States of America. And that in itself, you know, every time I look back at my father and I keep thinking, if this man was able to take a risk with his own um, wife at the age of 18, now we're five girls, girls, no boys at that time, and he was not even probably 24, 25 if he was able to go across the world not knowing what to expect on the other side and take the risk with his family and defy all his family. And, you know, at that time, uh, the States was called uh, the land of the infidels. That's what the family called it. It come from a very religious, conservative family on both sides of my mother and father. But here was this young man who had a vision not only for himself, educate himself, but he also had a vision to educate his five daughters, which at that time, females in Saudi Arabia and in many parts of the um, uh, Middle East, uh, Gulf area, were sort of, you know, said, why waste your time? But in answer to your question, coming back, when dad finally thought, okay, I need to go back now. My daughters have to be able to um, connect with their um, background. They have to connect with their heritage. Um, coming back, the most uh, educated person in the family came to pick us up. And now my sisters and I were five. We had now a little brother who was born in the States. We didn't really speak Arabic very well. And I remember sitting in a station wagon, wagon um, in the car, coming back uh, uh, into the oven. I remember seeing the lights. And then this young, uh, educated, the most educated man in our family said to my father, can you imagine if these girls were boys, what they would do to this country? Um, my father actually translated it to me because he said it in Arabic and I wasn't really that good in Arabic. And I will tell you, Michael, Yes. I, I looked at this, and this is the, edu- this is the most educated uh, person in our family. He was doing his bachelor's, almost finishing, and here we were coming back from, uh, you know, from the States, back to Saudi Arabia, and I'm, I'm seeing the lights of Riyadh, and here is this uh, relative who's saying, who already closed the doors 
for me before they were ever opened. And I remember when Dad translated it to me, I said to myself, I am going to make sure that what this uh, relative, he, he said it in good sense because he was just going with the flow. I will make sure that I do make a change as a woman in Saudi Arabia, no matter what it takes. So for me, that was a big turning point um, that I knew then that I really had a challenge and I wanted to meet that challenge and just keep on going and not stopping as long as it was within the system, within the system, and most importantly, something that would benefit the next generations and benefit the country as a whole. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, I have to say this is this is one hell of a story. Enormously inspiring and, and first of all thank you for sharing that. Um this is this is very, very strong message in in my eyes. Um when you were talking about all this I I, I, I was asking myself, um everything that you, you've been through and, and, and this turning point, this 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 very special point uh, when you came back to Saudi Arabia and this happened to you. Um Do you think that right now you are the type of role model for other people as your dad was for you? That is true. Um, you have to remember, as a woman, you always look for a woman role model. It's just the way when you're a man, you tend to sort of also, it's just, you know, common sense. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember as growing up, my father, of course, was my role model for that, but I always wanted to, also connect with a, a female role model. And I noticed that there were no Saudi female role models because my only role model was my mother, who was illiterate by force, although she gave us lots of strength and was there behind us. So I knew then that I had to be a role model for the next generation. And we were the first role models because we were the first generation that were educated and actually got positions. And I always say, especially when I'm in the States, I've been a lot in the United Kingdom giving many tech talks, especially um, the Chamber of Commerce tends to tap on my resources um, when they do forums on women in business. And I, I, I love to empower uh, females. And so it's, it's really interesting that I always say, We have to be those role models to the next generation. And not only that, we're sort of under the microscope because we didn't have any role models in ourselves. So when I see now the generation that's, my God, it's a thriving, you know, energetic generation, I tell them I envy each and every one of you because now you have so many role, Saudi role models, whereas we did not. Now, going back to what I was saying, when I go and I give the pep talks in the different parts of the world, I always say, show me one country or one society in the whole of the world where the mother is illiterate by force and our mothers are young. They marry at the age of 13. They have us at the age of 14. So technically, there's only a 14 to a 15-year span between the two generations. Show me one generation where the mother is illiterate by force. And the next generation, which is a very short duration of a 15-year span, where we are professors, surgeons, educators, 
entrepreneurs, business people, and poets to the extent that we are known at the international level. That does not happen. For this to happen, you need many generations, sometimes two to three generations. But for this to happen in Saudi Arabia, and with such a short span, it only denotes one thing, that the government of Saudi Arabia has always been the pusher, the supporter, the mediator to make sure that the next generation is always better and much better than the previous generation. So that, to me, has also been the second driving force. So first, you have your first driving force from your family. Secondly, your second driving force or motivation is actually your workplace, which have been very, very, very um, supportive of me, choosing me as the head of ophthalmology regardless of my gender. And your third driving force is the society or the government that uh, you live in. And if they give you also that support, then you, you know, I guess the, the sky is your limit. Yeah. What I, I realized, it's, it's, it's also the fact that you have, you know, in, in, in this time, you were able to step up to the responsibility of, of understanding, okay, there were no role models. And I'm, I'm, I, I sort of, um, although it was, of course, it was, uh, you know, some people had to pay for it in, in, in hard work, dedication, and, and made sacrifice, a lot of sacrifice, but you had the privilege to, to get there. Still, you, you stepped up for the, into the responsibility. You took it on you and you said, okay, I am going to be this role model that I needed and didn't have. And that's something I, I have to say I and respect you enormously for that because not a lot of people would um, step up to, to the responsibility and use all the potential that they have um, you know, to, to, to help others in this regard. You also um, were mentioning... If you remember, we also we had a lot of challenges, I will tell you. The challenges were just flabbergasted. The challenges, the obstacles, the people, the opposition that we would get every time we would move forward because a lot of people, especially the females, not only talking about the males, just did not want to get out of the comfort zone. The females like to be taken care of by the male household. So for me and for the others to come and push and be in the same level as our um, colleague, the male, to a lot of the females that was mind-boggling. So we got a lot of opposition. And to be, you know, we would go three steps forward, then we would be pushed back. But I always say, I went three steps forward. I was, I was pushed back, but only two steps. So I'm, only a, so I'm still a step ahead. You know, you, you need to have that very, very optimistic mind And you have to remember that every morning when you wake up, it is a challenge. I was teaching my young uh, uh, medical uh, female students on, on Wednesday, and, I, and they thought everything was rosy for me now. I said to them, no, every morning I wake up, it's a challenge. Don't let my name and my position fool you. Every morning that I wake up, I'm up against another challenge because I don't know what is going to happen. I have to work 10 times as hard as the male. And this happens everywhere. You know, the females are a minority, whether the females want to admit it or not. I have admitted it, but I always say it balances that out because when I do succeed, I do get 10 times the credit. So believe me, although we are the pioneers and the government is supporting us, 
my work is supporting me. The family is also supporting me. But you have to remember there is a lot of outside force that do not want to see you uh, grow because to them I was more or less um, something new. They just could not grasp and a lot of them did not want the females to be able to use that as a role model. But I come back again, and I say with persistence, with patience, with, with complete obligation to having a goal, to saying, I want to make a difference in my country. I want to make a difference for the next generation. I want to make a difference for my, um, you know, for the for the uh, for my uh, fellow Gulf uh, females. I want to make a difference for the. Arab world, I want to make a difference for the Muslim world, I want to make a difference for any females or ever. That in itself is one of the largest challenges that comes across. But then again, I go back and I look at my father, who took six girls, mom at the age of 18, and five other girls, five years and younger, to a different part of the world and succeeded. So he is my goal, and I'm hoping that one day I will reach what he was able to reach. Well, all I can say is that your path has been everything but, you know, straightforward. Again, huge respect for what you've done and accomplished. And I, I just, um, I hope that you can, you know, keep up this and, and motivate other um, other women from Saudi Arabia or, you know, the whole world and, and, and let them basically follow your example in all this. I wanted to talk quickly um, about your childhood as well, because as far as I, I have seen, you grew up, um, and you already told us, um, half in the U.S. And, and half in Saudi Arabia. And this is basically also your, your uh, life right now, that you're always switching between those countries. Would you say that this kind of international childhood um, had any special effects on you? Or since you had both cultures having a certain influence on you, um, that it created a, a special mix in you? Well, this is what I say. When I do something that I'm not supposed to do in Saudi Arabia, I say, oh my God, it's, so, it's that American influence. When I'm in the States and I do something I'm not supposed to do, I say, oh my God, it's that Saudi influence. So just to be on the safe side in both parts of the world, but definitely having lived in the United States, having parents who are very open, coming back to the kingdom, having families that were extremely conservative. I mean, I come from a very religious, conservative family, and then to have to come back and to try to uh, make them also happy and, and also to try to belong, because at the end, you are your family. That in itself served me, because I knew I wanted both parts of the world. I knew that each world... Has, has its good and its bad. I took the good from both worlds. That, to me, made me diverse, I guess. That, to me, made me my unique. You know, I, I, I have relatives who would not even shake hands with me here in Saudi Arabia because they would say those hands have, have touched male patients and you are working in a male environment. But I did not take that as a drawback. I knew that this was them. I knew that I could not change them because of the older generation. So what I did is I tried to live with that when I was in their environment. And I think, you know, as they say, when you're in Rome, you do what the Romans do. I tried as much as I can 
to fit in the Saudi population, being who I am, coming from a, a big family. And I think that in itself, having to fit into the family, gave me an insight that the resistance I would also be getting outside the family would probably be bigger. And that gave me an insight on how to handle, how to cope, and how to be able to adapt to these differences. When I'm in the States, it's my home. When I'm in Saudi, it's my home. So to be able to go between these two large countries, that in itself has given shaped me to who I am. Um, I have been the head of ophthalmology for the past now 22 years. They call me the longest head. No one is ever the head and chairman for that long. It's usually a four-year period. And I have, uh, you know, in the King Facebook Specialist Hospital, we have 61 different nationalities with over 13,000 employees. That in itself is a being like in a little diplomatic country, if you will. So to be able to, um, you know, to navigate between all these different cultures, uh, you know, cultures, religions, ethnic backgrounds, gender, that in itself has been a really also an important, um, if you will, um, learning curve for me. So in my, uh, I have 52 employees and I have never looked at their gender. I have never looked at their ethnic background. I've never looked at their religion. At the end, it's, it's only the productivity and that's what you more or less base your promotions on. And when I'm talking to my staff and there's sometimes a little uh, friction between them, I tell them you don't have to love the person you don't have to hate the person. You just have to be able to work with the person from, from 7.30 until 5. And then when you go home, that's your life. You look at what you want. So, again, I think this diversity to be able um, to navigate between the two different cultures. When the September 11th happened, the government tapped on my resources, and I could not understand why. Although I'm a, a surgeon, and I remember I was in the surgery room, and it was Davis right after the September 11th, and I was taken to New York. And since then, I have been sort of the voice of Saudi Arabia in the States. We were able to open, uh, I sat with Homeland Security, and I was able at that point to um, get the first 5,000 visas back for the Saudi students. Wow, okay. We were able to get the patients back. Mm-hmm. It took a lot of... Uh, a lot of that. But again, as I said, I can talk the language of the Americans. I can talk the language of Saudi being originally from Saudi, from very conservative family who see me as, as, as a sheep, as the black sheep or the person out of the box. So to be able to understand both parts, especially having lived in the United States, I, mean, I was there since the age of five until I practically finished high school. Dad and, and But dad always reminded us that we were Saudis and we would be going back. So being able to navigate between the two, understand both cultures, that in itself has been very, very helpful, not only to me and in making my character, but it also has been helpful to trying to make it a difference for the next generation. And I'm hoping with all that I have done between the two countries, it has also been helpful to my government and promoting them for that next step, you know, in, in, in bridging the relationship that was severe, but now we're much better between uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and between the United States, because at that time we had made an, an excellent organization called Friends of Saudi Arabia, 
and I headed that organization for four years until we really got the relations back on the road. I can see how this intersection of, of cultures and, and also languages and perhaps also your personality, uh, you know, directed a little bit in, into diplomacy uh, and, and, and uh, you know, free communication, how this helped you um, in your life and also in all these things. Now, you mentioned the work at the hospital um, and what you do. I was wondering, when you started medicine um, or in general, do you think that the role of the doctor nowadays is much different from when you started um, studying medicine? Do you think a lot of has changed since then? Definitely. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. It changes. I mean, Crown Prince, who we all look up to now, has said, we used to have the Samsonite, now I have the Apple, right? Um, with the technology, everything has changed. Before being in the, uh, you know, going into medicine, this was a big thing. And I remember I didn't want to go into medicine. When uh, we came back to Saudi Arabia uh, and I had graduated, finished high school, uh, the females in Saudi Arabia crew, and I had to stay in Saudi Arabia. There was no one to go back with me to the States because we're very family-oriented. You could only be a, a, a doctor, and answers your question, or you could only be a teacher. Those were the only two options available for females, and I wanted to be neither. Well, my father would ask me, what's wrong? I said, I want to be able, from, ever since I was little, I want to be able to represent my country. That's why I always felt. And then he would say to me, the only way people will listen to you is if they trust you. And the only way you're going to get the trust of the people is you have to be able to do something humane. And what is there more humane than being a physician who will always heal people? Get yourself into medicine, and then you'll be... And he always had a really... And you'll then be able to represent uh, your country in the best way. Now, going back to your question, at that time, going into medicine, especially for females, but in both sexes, that was a really big thing. I mean, to be a doctor... But now, with all this uh, technology, with everything that is happening, yes, medicine has changed dramatically. I am now working on a project, um, you know, with pre uh, technology, with what we call, I don't want to go into it, it would take me hours, but it's called the artificial intelligence, where now instead of having doctors in different places, you can actually feed these black boxes, these different algorithms, yeah. and they would mm -hmm. be able to diagnose everything for you. And so when they come to the doctor, the only thing we have to worry about is only for us treating rather than triaging, to be able to treat rather than be able to screen and triage for us, especially as specialized and high-skilled doctors. This does make a difference. But then... Once we master that and we are mastering it in very different um, uh, specialities, the next thing would be is I don't even have to treat. If I have to treat someone by laser for diabetic retinopathy, which is a blinding disease, I should be able to get the laser to be able to do that automatically through some robotic. So, yes, medicine is going to change. We are now going into the, what, I call them, what I call the futurism and uh, this is something way, it's going to be way beyond us. And we also have to remember now, we are creating what we call the neom. This is the new, if you will, it's like it's going to be a country in the country of Saudi Arabia, the neom country, the country of Saudi Arabia, where 
the largest sector will be um, depending on technology and artificial intelligence. And I think this is where medicine is going to go to. I think people now have to shift gear, not think only about being a doctor, but going beyond that and being able to control and being able to master the step behind being a healer. And with this new technology, although we're going to be losing a lot of the personal contact between us and the patient, but this is where we have to go into if we want to be able to be in parallel with the rest of the world, which is now into artificial intelligence, technology, telemedicine, where you can actually be treated within your own home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So direction, the direction that you're describing would be basically that um, doctors will have to um, you know, successively um, learn how to work with, with intelligent machines more than actually operating on the patient. Did I understand you correctly? Definitely, because we will never have enough doctors. Mm-hmm. Never. You will never have enough doctors for the population that is now increasing um, in, in, you know, in birth. And, in, in, you know, we have now our older population living longer for facilities. And then as the, as the population lives longer, and I don't want to have to dwell onto that, then you get all these chronic diseases that make it even more difficult for patients. And then your, your, your um, birth population is increasing. So with that population increasing on both sides, extending the life and more, more of the birth population, you will never have enough physicians to cover good medical care. So we have no other option but to be able to do everything by artificial intelligence instead of having a one-to-one doctor, this artificial machine would be able to screen or to examine up to 10 to 25 doctors in the time it takes for the doctor to do a one-to-one. Mm, and I this see. is a necessity and to be able to continue. So we're not replacing the doctors, but now we just have to shift gear because of our population growth and our population living longer and diseases now, these chronic diseases, unfortunately now taking over. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also looking at, at uh, you know, your, your beginning in, in the field of medicine, um, there's something I like to know from, from, from doctors is uh, why did you choose um, your specialty to be ophthalmology? What, what was your, um, I would say, um, your motivation to go and, and see the eye as the object of, of what you're going to do basically for you know the rest of your life? I didn't choose ophthalmology. Ophthalmology chose me. <laughs> okay. And probably say why. When I um, came back to Saudi Arabia and I had to do, I think, one or two years in high school to, to be able to be equivalent, because at that time we didn't really know much Arabic. And then when I graduated... As I told you, Dad said, it's either medicine or teacher. So when I went into medicine and I excelled and I did well, so when I graduated from the College of Medicine, I had already applied to many um, residency programs, if you will, in the States, and I was chosen, but the family would not. And when I talk family, I'm not talking about my mother and father. We live in a family society. We're very interconnected. They would not allow me at that time to go abroad because I did not have a male companion. Very different from now. I have now my daughter who's in the States. She has her own scholarship. Scholarships were not given to females directly. You had to have a husband, a brother, a father, 
who was on the scholarship, and then at that time, he extends his scholarship to you. Now, we're talking about the 1980s. So I was told flat to my face, you cannot go abroad. If you are to do your residency, you have to do your residency in Riyadh, where your family is. Now, I could have, um, you know, given up. I could have gotten married because my uncle already had people lined up for me. Um, everything was already sort of put on a platform for me. But instead, I said, this is what I'm going to do. So I went to Riyadh. I went all around Riyadh looking for an accredited residency program. I did not want to waste time. I didn't just want to do a residency program until I can figure out a way to go abroad. So I went around Riyadh, the only residency program in Riyadh that was accredited by the United States of America. And they had a program through the different universities in the state. The only program was ophthalmology. So I went and I attended one or two. Didn't really think it was that appealing, but I knew that if I wanted to make a difference and make use of my time. So I entered into ophthalmology. They had a they had what they call an entrance exam. I excelled, I did well. And so I went into ophthalmology because that was the only residency program that was accredited. But now, and this was in 1986, now as I look back over 30 years, if you had given me any other speciality, I would have not chosen anything but ophthalmology. So many a times your fate could be your best judge of what you need to go into. It's not really what we want, but sometimes our fate dictates what we need. And I'm telling you, um, this was to me a plus because I love ophthalmology. This is what I do. It combines between both surgery and medicine. And to me, I'm very surgical, but I also like to read a lot. So to have a speciality that combines between the two, we're called surgeons, but we also do a lot of reading. That in itself is a very, very important um, uh, if you will, characteristic uh, for my um, for my future. So, yes, it is ophthalmology. I do love it, and I don't think if I had to do it over again, I would have changed my speciality because now in this day and age, you don't only have medicine and you don't only have um, education to become a teacher for the females. My God, now the the opportunities for the Saudi females is beyond belief. I, I know of uh, females that have gotten their scholarships and they have extended now their scholarships to either their husbands or their brothers or to their sons. So now the, the coin has flipped. And this is what Saudi Arabia is about. It's about change. But the change has to be done within us, not some outside force telling us what to do. I mean, I have stories that if I would tell you would make your hair stand to show you the difference where, where Saudi Arabia was and where Saudi Arabia is now. I can believe that. Although on a funny note, um, I am bald, so I don't think this would really happen with the hair. <laughs> but uh, I understand what you meant. And it's, I'm very happy that this lucky coincidence that you, um, you know, of, of, uh, of the life path of ophthalmology happened to you because I can feel how enthusiastic are you about that and, and even until now how, how much it, it means to you. Um, Professor Alhaza, last question for you. Um, if you could change one thing in the 
in the world of medicine as it is today, anything, what would you change and why? I was hoping you would say, what would you change in Saudi Arabia? But that's fine. We can do, we can do that as a part B of your question. Okay. <laughs> um, I think what I would, if I had to change medicine, and you're talking about changing medicine then or now? Now. Now. I think if I had to change anything in medicine now, I would say we as, as uh, physicians have to really go more into artificial intelligence, mm. more into corporate medicine. We have to now let go of the government giving us, uh, you know, the fee and then we do the service, but more so go do the service and get the fee because we want sustainability and the only way you are going to have sustainability is with privatization. So we are in the privatization, but this is what I would say to my colleagues in my generation who are resisting change. Privatization now is the thing we do have to be able to be sustainable, especially with the 2030 vision. And if I had to change anything in medicine now, I would say let go of the government ministry of health overlooking us they should only be regulators, and it should be service for fee. And it's only if we do it service for fee, we have to get out of our comfort zone and go into this transformation in corporate, then we will be sustainable. We will be able to be give better care, better medical care, because time changes what we did before. You cannot do it now and this with this 2030 vision um, in the 2020 a national transformation. Okay. Do you still want to uh, say what you would change about Saudi Arabia? I, I would give you that, uh, oh, yes. that possibility yes, you <laughs> since you that. already spoke yes. about yes. that, you know? <laughs> well, if you told me what do you want to have changed from Saudi Arabia in the past to now, I will tell you I wish that our crown prince, Hamad bin Salman, was here not only now, was here 30 years ago, although I know he was probably then a very small child. But if his mentality, his charisma, his courage was present 30 years ago, we would have saved 30 years of our Saudi history, and we would have been 30 years now ahead. But that's fine. We're happy he's here now. We are all here to support him, and we're hoping that we can go at a much faster pace than what we did before. As he said, I'm not really changing anything. I just want to bring back Saudi Arabia to what it was when my grandfather was in charge of Saudi Arabia, because we had gone backwards. We don't want to get into that. We had gone backwards for the last 30 years, and I've lived those 30 years, and I always have to overlook my shoulder to make sure that I'm not stepping on anybody's toes but I'm not defying anyone because I wanted to be part of this society. I wanted to make a change, but I wanted to make sure that the change was within the context of the government and what would people would ex you know, accept so that as not to be um, out of the box, out of the circle, and then at the end be an opposition, which is something I would never consider. I want to make it a change to the better for the next generation, for the country, and most importantly, for my family.
Thank you very much for this wonderful closing statement. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Professor Selva Alhaza from Saudi Arabia. Thank you very much, madam, again, that you joined and had this wonderful talk with me. Um, and for everybody else, um, try to catch up with our podcast the next time that we're going to have another amazing guest. Thank you very much and goodbye. The Voice of Medicine. Gedanken, Geschichten und Talks aus der faszinierenden Welt der Medizin. Denn wir bringen sie an den Puls. Präsentiert von Radiolutions.